dear faculty of the University of Oxford, dear students and guests, first of all, let me say, let me say it's my pleasure and I'm delighted to be here today on this beautiful day to actually present this very topical issue on intervention upon humanitarian grounds. And also, let me say, although in his absence, I'm very grateful to the director of the CCW Centre at Pembroke College, Oxford, uh, Dr. Robert Johnson. It is my purpose in this lecture to actually establish that there is a right, a legal right, and moral right of humanitarian intervention, uh, and especially unilateral humanitarian intervention. Um, it is definitely addressed to policymakers in the Foreign Office, in the Ministry of Defense, in the US State Department, uh, to academics who actually deal extensively with international law international relations, and of course students, graduate and undergraduate, who study thoroughly <coughs> these very fields. I shall divide my lecture in four parts. First of all, I shall refer to state practice on interventions on humanitarian grounds. Secondly, I shall assess this state practice and also refer to relevant rulings of the International Court of Justice. Thirdly, I will refer to post-UN humanitarian interventions, this proposed UN Charter interventions which were launched on humanitarian grounds. And finally, I will elaborate on legal and moral philosophy, of course, including just war theory related to this very issue. So let's get started immediately with a very important definition of humanitarian intervention. It may be defined as the proportionate use of force by governments in order to prevent serious violations of fundamental human rights of rights of individuals in other states who would readily consent to such a military action. According to Oppenheim, late professor of international law in the University of Cambridge in the beginning of the 20th century, when a state commits cruelties against and persecution of its own nationals in such a way as to deny their fundamental rights and to shock the conscience of mankind, then intervention in the interests of humanity is legally permissible. So turning to the state practice on this very issue. Let me just first mention some historical evidence of humanitarian interventions. In the massive material on this topic which I've gone through all these years, the contribution of a famous historian Thucydides has been perhaps unduly neglected with respect to intervention of this sort within the context of international law. Therefore, I should refer to two very important examples which appear in the history of the Peloponnesian War in Thucydides, which actually may document the existence of such a right in ancient times, which clearly survived in the modern world. Of course, the affairs which follow should be seen, for those who are not familiar with ancient Greek history, should be seen in the light of the fact that the Greek city-states in ancient times were actually, as I said, states themselves. So, uh, in Book 4, of the history of the Peloponnesian War may at first sight be said to pose an example of intervention upon humanitarian grounds. Very shortly the facts were as follows. On its way to Sicily, the Athenian fleet met, was met with a sea storm, which forced the ships to seek refuge in the Peloponnese, a province of Greece, and particularly in Pylos. As the war between Athens and Sparta was at its apex, the Athenian navy members were arrested by Lacedaemonians. Lacedaemonians is another name for the Spartans. Cleon, the Athenian demagogue, forcefully urged the Athenian assembly for a military campaign to prevent their fellow citizens from being massacred. Although the incident may be better be described 
as an operation to save nationals abroad, to use the modern terminology in international law, clearly it generated the criteria for a legitimate humanitarian intervention, as these were formulated in the speech of the Athenian general Demosthenes before the commencement of the military rescue operation. What Demosthenes said, the leader of the Athenians who were trapped in Pylos, was this. Men who have gathered in this, in this venture, let no one of you be esteemed a man of intelligence or a man of rationality. But let us, with plain courage, which casts aside reflection, attack against the opponents and even be optimistic that we shall be proved victorious. When things reach a matter of necessity or a point of necessity, crude rationalism is least needed. Now, interestingly, if one reads modern international law, case law, it is easy to actually spot the fact that this terminology used by Demosthenes is identical with the one used in the famous Caroline case, which actually laid down the clear criteria for the use of force. It, is, it may be coincidental, the fact that uh, those who actually use this terminology in the Caroline case follow the same pattern as Thucydides does, and especially General Demosthenes. But researchers have done into uh, those who actually utter these phrases in the Caroline case, looks as though they have studied Thucydides. Let me just quote very briefly an extract from the Caroline case, which indicates what I've just stated. It will be for Her Majesty's government to show a necessity of self-defense, instant, overwhelming, leaving no moment for deliberation. These were the, wo the words of Mr. Webster. And the Caroline case also uh, definitely may be, said, may be seen as one which sets limits to the use of force in general and calls for adherence to proportionality. And also what Mr. Webster said in this case, did nothing unreasonable or excessive, since the act is justified by the necessity of self-defense, must be limited by that necessity and kept clearly within it. Obviously, this one refers to the principle of proportionality and limited use of force uh, in accordance with the circumstances. Now, clearly this incident of Thucydides uh, is one which might be described as uh, an incident which, which poses a paradigm example of intervention to save nationals abroad or humanitarian intervention. There is another incident in the, in the history which actually illustrates that occasionally when lives are in danger, a state may also launch an intervention to save those lives. And that is the case of Mytilene, whereby the Mytileneans were faced with imminent danger because of the atrocities committed against them on part of the city of Athens. The Mytileneans called for help to Sparta. Sparta did dispatch a military fleet, which unfortunately was recalled and never reached the Bay of Mytilene. The fleet basically was recalled because the foreign policy of Sparta was largely dictated by the fear, the possible fear, of a helot revolt. Helots were obviously the slaves of Sparta who were occasionally revolting uh, in various ways. So that very fact actually frustrated the whole intervention, which of course might have matured in a humanitarian action. Now, turning to contemporary state practice, if we take a look at pre-charter unilateral interventions of humanitarian kind, the first example is the joint intervention of Great Britain, Russia, and France in aid of the Greek revolutionaries in 1827, basically the famous Navy Battle of Navarino. 
it is interesting to actually quote the treaty which was signed between the three major powers, the great powers, as they were called, and indeed they were great powers, signed in London on 6 July 1827, which, of course, according to paragraph one of the preamble, of concern was all the disorders of anarchy caused by the struggle which both impede the commerce of the states of Europe and give opportunity to pirates, which not only expose the subjects of the high contracting parties to grievous losses, but also render necessary measures which are burdensome for their observation and suppression. The most important part of the London Treaty, actually, was paragraph two, which gives us a flavor of the humanitarian sentiments which led to this action of liberating Greece. The paragraph two, uh, preamble of the paragraph two, expressly says, the great powers had received from the Greeks an earnest invitation to interpose their mediation with the Ottoman Porter, and together with the Emperor of Russia, animated with the desire of putting a stop to the effusion of blood, and of preventing the evils of every kind, had resolved to combine and regulate their efforts with a view to re-establish peace efforts demanded no less by sentiments of humanity, and this is the crucial point, no less by sentiments of humanity than by interests for the tranquility of Europe. The famous Navy Battle of Navarino, surprise, surprise, Navarino is actually exactly on the same spot as ancient Pylos, where the famous intervention took place before in the context of the Peloponnesian War. So the battle took place on the 20th of October, 1827, and ended with a very serious defeat of the Turco-Egyptian forces, the Turco-Egyptian fleet, which eventually withdrew from the Peloponnese in Greece. Now, uh, Ian Brownlee, a former Cicelli professor of public international law in the University of Oxford, says that the governments of the day did not refer to a legal justification for interventions, in this case, which might be said to have a humanitarian character. Now, although I greatly respect Ian Brownlee, and actually he himself, in his famous book, International Law and the Use of Force by States, actually admits that there is such a right of unilateral humanitarian intervention. In this case, he submits that such a right was more an ex post factorism, that is a right which was later invoked by various scholars to justify the intervention. In fact, here, interestingly, Brownlee contradicts himself because in the previous page, immediately, 338 of the same monograph, in fact, says that this legal right did exist at the time and could have been invoked by all those interested parties. More important is perhaps the assertion of uh, other scholars that this intervention was more launched in the context of strategic interests in the region rather than for any humanitarian sentiments. And this is the view of Simon Chesterman, who was a student, a doctoral student of Brownlee at Magdalen College, Oxford, and produced a monograph on just war and referred extensively to the Navy Battle of Navarino. Now, how do we strike down this argument if we want to believe that there actually existed humanitarian sentiments in those great powers who actually launched this famous intervention, which ended up in the famous Navy battle in aid of the Greek revolutionaries? There is a very important letter which was sent by Lord Bathurst, Secretary of State for the Colonies at the time, 
to Sir Harry Neal, Commander-in-Chief of the station in the Mediterranean in February 1826, just a year before the Navy battle. Let me quote this very important letter. His Majesty has long had reason to lament the atrocities which have disgraced the contest in which Greece has been for many years unhappily involved. When it is understood that whether with the consent of the porter or not, designs are evolved by Ibrahim Pasha to extirpate systematically a whole community, to seize upon the women and children of the Morea, to transport them to Egypt, and to repeople the Morea and the Peloponnese from Africa and Asia, to change, in fact, that part of Greece from a European state into one resembling the states of Barbary, that's his own terminology, His Majesty cannot, as the sovereign of a European state, hear of such an attempt without demanding of Ibrahim Pasha either an explicit disavowal of his ever having entertained such an intention or a formal denunciation of it, if ever entertained. And please note that these letter did not see the light at the time, saw the light many years later. It was therefore not really compiled for any kind of internal politics interests, for not really uh, the purpose of promoting any kind of political expediencies, but was very honestly compiled by someone in the UK, a very high standing administrative officer was really genuinely interested in this very crisis in Greece. Also, facts which indicate that this intervention was indeed humanitarian are the fact that the public opinion in the UK was very much in favor of this intervention and pressed really the government to eventually take this action. We have the sacrifice of Lord Byron of Trinity College, Cambridge, who actually died in Missolonghi for the purpose of liberating Greece. And also the admirals of the UK were very much in favor of the Greek cause. Of course, one cannot deny the underlying strategic interests in this intervention, and clearly, a major such interest was to prevent a possible intervention on part of Russia in Greece. And therefore, that would mean Russia would obviously influence largely the politics of Greece after uh, the subsequent potential independence of the state, of the, of the region. Therefore, clearly, George Canning, the then Prime Minister, who of course died just a few weeks before the Navy Battle of Navarino, and other officials were very genuinely interested in averting this possibility of a Russian intervention. Now, a second example pre-charter is the French occupation of Syria. Very briefly, the facts were as follows. In 1860, thousands of Maronite Christians were killed by Muslims on Mount Lebanon, then part of Syria, but within the Ottoman Empire. After a meeting of the ambassadors of Great Britain, France, Prussia, and Russia, and Austria, a convention was signed. Under the terms of the convention, the Sultan, wishing to stop by prompt and efficacious measures the effusion of blood in Syria and to show his firm resolution to establish order and peace amongst the populations placed under his sovereignty, agreed to dispatch 12,000 troops to Syria to contribute towards the reestablishment of peace. France was to provide half the number. A French force was sent but came across restoration of order by the Ottoman local government. Despite that, the French troops occupied parts of Syria and warships remained in the area from August 1860 to June 1861. Brownlee again includes 
this, in, in this event as the most likely exception to his general statement that international practice in the 19th century discloses no genuine case of humanitarian intervention. However, it has been said that the measures taken by the Ottoman Sultan made foreign intervention unnecessary and suspicious in view of the various interests of European states. Um, we've got to note, however, that in a protocol which was signed before the adoption of the convention between Great Britain, Austria, France, Prussia, Russia, and Turkey, the powers declared in the most formal manner that they would not seek any territorial advantage, exclusive influence, or concession under the pretext of the occupation. There should be no doubt that the concerns of the powers, especially France, and of course the rest of them, for the Christian populations were, to a large extent, humanitarian. The third example, pre-charter, is the US intervention in Cuba, 1898. The US intervention seems to be another instance of humanitarian action in state practice preceding the adoption of the UN Charter. Stowell refers to it as one of the most important instances of humanitarian intervention. Simon Chesterman, on the other hand, citing Fontaine, says that the action was but the flashpoint of the broader war with Spain. In a matter of months, the Spanish Navy was defeated. Spain had relinquished the, rem the remnants of its empire. The US had established herself as a world power, and Cuba was an American protectorate. That's exactly his phraseology. That's exactly what uh, Chesterman says on this incident. Atrocities were committed by Spanish authorities in Cuba, attempting to control the insurrection of uh, 1885. Beyond doubt, the Spanish policy of forcing the population into concentration camps in order to identify revolutionaries instigated genuine outcry in the US. And according to estimations of Farrell, about 200,000 Cubans perished in concentration camps. <coughs> so uh, we do have here, clearly, humanitarian grounds for intervention. And interestingly, in his special message to Congress, President McKinley of the US outlined three justifications for US intervention in the conflict. First, the cause of humanity. Secondly, protection of US citizens. And thirdly, self-defense. And then, of course, a resolution was, was passed authorizing intervention because of the abhorrent conditions which shocked the moral sense of the people of the US, have been a disgrace to Christian civilization, culminating as they were in the destruction of a US battleship uh, in that case as well. Uh, finally, on this, it is interesting that Tesson, another US scholar, international law scholar, concludes his brief survey of pre-charter practice by stating that the most important precedent for a right of humanitarian intervention is this one and the Second World War. So we do have substantial academic support for this intervention as well, coming from US scholars basically, that in fact there were humanitarian motives which led eventually uh, to the US action. Now, with respect to post-charter unilateral humanitarian interventions, we do have certainly some obvious examples. First of all, the Belgian and US intervention in the Congo 1964. Briefly the facts. In 64, the third one third of the Congo came under the control of a rebel group, which was based in Stanleyville. The rebel forces took a thousand or so foreign residents hostage and threatened to kill them. 
peaceful efforts to free the hostages having failed, Belgian forces intervened with US, sorry, with UK logistical assistance and US aircrafts. The troops were withdrawn after a successful operation. In the 1970s, the mission was characterized as one of the clearest modern instances of true humanitarian intervention and one that should be viewed as lawful in character. In a note to the address to the Security Council, Belgium spoke of the mission as being a legal, moral, and humanitarian operation which conforms to the highest aims of the UN, namely the defense and protection of fundamental human rights. The US, in a letter to the Security Council, stated that the sole purpose of this humanitarian mission was to liberate hostages whose lives were in danger. However, the UK scholar in international law, Harris, observes that the rescue operation was undertaken under the consent of the Congolese government and hence was not dependent upon any right of humanitarian intervention. So there is some doubt on part of certain academics about this operation. The second example post-charter of unilateral humanitarian action is the Indian invasion of Bangladesh. Of course, undoubtedly, before I go on, uh, there seem to be important political interests in most of these cases. But as I shall comment upon later and come back to this point, this does not actually strike down the argument that an intervention may be termed or may be characterized as humanitarian if indeed there are simultaneously strong humanitarian grounds, strong humanitarian sentiments on part of those who actually launch this kind of intervention. Very briefly, what happened here, until 1971, Pakistan consisted of East and West Pakistan with India between the two parts. In March 1971, East Pakistan declared itself independent under the name of Bangladesh. Although the Pakistan army was initially successful in suppressing the rebellion, rebel guerrilla forces launched a general offensive with considerable success. As there was evidence to suggest that India, which had taken into its territory about one million refugees from East Pakistan, had given the guerrillas some substantial assistance militarily, Pakistani and Indian troops clashed in the border area, the Indian Prime Minister the then Prime Minister, Indira Gandhi, having first declared war. Eventually, Pakistan surrendered, and Bangladesh has since received recognition, that of Pakistan included, as an independent state. The Indian intervention in East Pakistan is commonly held up as one of the more promising examples of humanitarian intervention. Tesson calls, calls it an almost perfect example, and Fontaine says that it probably constitutes the clearest case of forceful individual humanitarian intervention in this century. Bowett, Sir Derek Bowett, and I shall refer to him largely uh, subsequently because he's a major figure, as you may know, in public international law, includes this as the only possible illustration of the practice in the period between 1945 and 1986. In the Security Council, India's rep stated that we have on this particular occasion absolutely nothing but the purest of motives and the purest of intentions to rescue the people of East Bengal from what they have been suffering. Um, also, and a final comment on this intervention, Lilik, uh, the author 
of the commentary on the UN Charter, famous international law expert, actually characterized and stated this intervention as humanitarian and fully justified from the moral point of view. There is one more which I will skip <coughs> because of lack of time. It's the Tanzanian intervention in Uganda, uh, which I'm sure uh, many of you have gone through uh, from studying international law cases and materials in this context. The most important part of this section, apart from what has obviously been said so far, is the assessment of this state practice and the relevant rulings of the International Court of Justice in this regard. So let's see what arguments may actually be put forward in support of this state practice. There is clearly strong evidence to suggest that there was and still is customary international law pre-charter authorizing intervention on humanitarian grounds. It is noteworthy that the emergence of this customary international law was further endorsed in the very famous Nicaragua case. I'll skip the facts because what is important here is the actual decision of the ICJ, the International Court of Justice, and in particular, the obiter dictum in this very case. The court held that reliance by a state on a novel right or an unprecedented exception to the principle of non-intervention might, if shared by other states, tend towards modification of customary international law. And although the court found that the argument derived from this preservation of human rights in Nicaragua cannot afford a legal justification for the conduct of the US in this particular, in this particular case, went on to make a critical observation. This is absolutely crucial, and I quote verbatim. No doubt the provision of strictly humanitarian aid to persons or forces in another country, whatever their political affiliations or objectives, cannot be regarded as unlawful intervention or in any other way contrary to international law. And this dictum clearly paved the way for the establishment of a post-charter international custom of unilateral humanitarian intervention. The ICJ having reaffirmed the criteria for the formation of new rules of customary international law as laid down in the North Sea Continental Shelf cases, provided a definition of opinio juris, essential requirement to the creation of international custom. And as you all know, or may not know, uh, it is absolutely important that state practice is accompanied by opinio juris in order that we may actually witness the establishment of a legal right. That is, state practice must be supported by substantial views, substantial opinions of renowned academics in international law so as to be, just to crystallize into a legal right. We also have a very important statement in a document of the UK Foreign Office number 148 on humanitarian intervention, which is quite illuminating in this regard. And I quote again, often the humanitarian benefits of an intervention are either not claimed by the intervening state or are only put forward as an exposed factor justification of the intervention. State practice goes on, especially since 1945, provides a handful of genuine cases of humanitarian intervention. And truly, since 1945, we do have 
a handful of cases, however, an important handful of cases, which illustrate that this right of humanitarian action is not just an emerging right, but at this very moment is in fact an established right if we take into account that this right has been accompanied by serious opinion juris, serious views of the most renowned academics who argue for such a right. Um, a widespread argument in favor of a right of unilateral humanitarian intervention is that it survived the passage of the UN Charter. And of course, again, Derek Bowett writes, it is fallacious to assume that members have only those rights which the Charter accords them. On the contrary, they have those rights which international law accords to them, general international law accords <coughs> to them, except in so far as they have surrendered them under the Charter. So, obviously, a very strong argument can be made that the right of unilateral humanitarian intervention has survived the UN Charter and is not really prohibited under 2.4, Article 2, Paragraph 4 of the UN Charter. In other words, it may be said as being an exception to the general prohibition of the use of force as this is stated under Article 2, Paragraph 4 of the UN Charter. Now, if this argument does not sound to be very convincing in this second part of my lecture, which assesses state practice and relevant ICJ decisions, then one might put forward a different argument, an equally strong argument, which, in fact, goes towards the same direction of establishing a right of intervention on humanitarian grounds. Namely, what happens if we have a conflict, as we do have here, between pre-charter customary law, pre-charter state practice, and the provisions of the UN Charter, the subsequent international treaty, which lays down a general prohibition of the use of force in Article 2.4. The solution in this clash of sources of international law is actually to invoke the sources of international law again, and namely here the general principles of international law, in order to give a solution to this conflict of sources of international law, uh, as it were. What happens in practice? We have to invoke the principles, uh, in fact, the Latin legal maxims, lex speciali derogat lex generali. Lex generali, in this case, being the general prohibition of the use of force in the UN Charter, and lex speciali being the specific, the particular law, that is, state practice on intervention which was developed after the UN Charter. Therefore, the specific law prevails over the general law. The other argument along the same lines is to actually invoke another general principle of international law, which is also a general principle of law as such, namely legis posterioris prioris contrarius abrogant. This Latin principle means that the posterior law abrogates conflicting previous law. So here we have customary international law, which was developed after the passing of the UN Charter, which in this case may abrogate previous conflicting law, which is in particular the Article 2, Paragraph 4 of the UN Charter, which generally prohibits the use of force. So according to these general principles of international law, we may actually find a solution to the clash or the conflict of sources, the Charter on the one hand, and state practice on the other, which was developed quite extensively on a large scale after the passing of the UN Charter, 
obviously supporting the right of unilateral intervention based on humanitarian grounds. Now, in the third section of my lecture, I shall refer to post-charter UN humanitarian intervention. Will, how much time do I have? It's 10 minutes. 10 minutes, okay. Well, one example is that of Iraq in 1991. Here, <coughs> the period after the defeat of Iraq in the Kuwait crisis witnessed risings of the Kurds in the northern part of the country, which were brutally repressed by the Iraqi army in disregard of the relevant Geneva Conventions, provisions, or human rights international instruments. Uh, Security Council Resolution 688 of 1991 stated that the Security Council condemned the repression of the Iraqi civilian population, and the UK and the USA and some other states brought forces into Iraq in aid of the Kurdish refugees. The UK Foreign Office, in a statement, expressed that we're vigorously pursuing this proposal for safe havens. Our aim is to create places and conditions in which the refugees can feel secure. That is the first case within the context of the UN post-charter. Another instance is the instance of Kosovo, which I'm sure, I suppose, a few of you might find as a bit ambivalent. Uh, however, in the case of Kosovo in 1999, uh, as you know, NATO launched an intervention for humanitarian purposes to save the Muslim population in Kosovo, which was largely massacred by uh, the Serbs. Um, and of course, that was done without UN authorization. On the one hand, one might say that Kosovo is a traditional place of the Serbian uh, nation. Therefore, the Serbs had a right to defend themselves and uh, get rid of the Muslims in the area. That is one argument. The other argument at the other end, which I endorse largely, is that even if we do accept that Kosovo is traditionally a part of Serbia, war crimes were certainly committed in that case by the Milosevic regime against the Muslims in the region. So we do have war crimes there. We do have violations of international humanitarian law and by extension of international criminal law. So the intervention might be seen as an instance of humanitarian action, in spite of the fact that there was no UN Security Council resolution authorizing such an action in that case. Since time is pressing, I shall move uh, straight forward to the final section of my uh, lecture, which actually explores legal and moral philosophy on humanitarian intervention. The first subsection analyzes the conflict between sovereignty, the concept of sovereignty, and the concept of human rights. Clearly here, when a state intervenes in order to protect human rights in another state, at first sight, we observe a violation of that other state's sovereignty, which, as you know, is a fundamental concept <coughs> in international law, according to some views, an inviolable concept in international law. It is necessary to show that a right of unilateral humanitarian intervention is compatible with Article 2.4 of the UN Charter. 
So the first argument which might be employed is that a genuine humanitarian intervention would not be a use of force against the territorial integrity or political independence of any other state. Or the second argument goes that it might be consistent with the purposes of the UN Charter. And very importantly, again, Goodrich and Hambro, uh, two famous American scholars who actually pr produced a very important commentary on the, on the UN Charter, observed that it is possible to construe the language as allowing certain limited uses of force, such as, contemporary, such, such as temporary intervention, for protected purposes. Let me quote, very importantly, Article 56 of the UN Charter, which is very relevant in this regard. All member states pledge themselves to take joint and separate action, I repeat that, to take joint and separate action in cooperation with the UN organization for the achievement of the purposes set forth in Article 55. So here we have a clear UN Charter article which allows states to take action, even unilaterally, even separately, in order to promote and protect the purposes of the UN Charter, namely in this case, in, in this very case, the protection of human rights and fundamental freedoms. Let me also quote a very important view on this topic by Professor Von Law, whom some of you may know. He was the former Chichel Professor of International Law in the University of Oxford. He was my one of my professors in Cambridge many years ago. Then he moved to Oxford, and he actually produced a memorandum submitted in response to a request from the UK House of Commons Select Committee on Foreign Affairs in connection with its hearings on the NATO intervention in Kosovo. So Von Law very pointedly states the following. The development of international law, international human rights law, since 1945, through global agreements such as the Genocide Convention and the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights and regional conventions such as the European Convention on Human Rights, has reached the point where the treatment by a state of its own population can no longer be regarded as an internal matter. In particular, widespread, von Law goes on, and systematic violations of human rights involving the loss of life on a large scale are well established as a matter of international concern. So obviously, we have academic support as well for the view or for the argument that the protection of human rights is actually a major purpose of the UN, which may invite for interventions of humanitarian kind whenever these rights are flagr flagrantly and obviously, in any circumstances, violated. Um, let me here quote another famous international law professor who, in this context, wrote extensively, namely Hirsch Lauter Pact. He was, again, I'm sorry to say that, he was a professor in what we call here the other place, Cambridge, but still he was a great professor uh, and left his mark in international law. He very well put the statement that states are like individuals. It is due to the fact that states are composed of individual human beings and the dignity of the individual human being is a matter of, of direct concern to international law. So this statement actually suggests that from the moral standpoint, the rights of states in international law derive from individual rights. So it's very important to actually protect these individual rights whenever they are obviously violated or transgressed. Um, 
In view of this discussion so far in the section, the last part dealing with the theoretical approach and the moral and legal philosophy of the, on the subject matter, one may obviously conclude that there is a moral right, if not a moral duty of states to intervene militarily to protect human rights whenever these are violated. The last part of, or the last subsection of my, uh, this lecture part refers to just war theory. And uh, here, let me refer to three main arguments very briefly. The first argument, which is eloquently put forward in favor of humanitarian intervention, is that war is not in conflict with natural law, is not in conflict with the law of nature. The famous Roman jurist Cicero has presented what can be done against force without force. Ulpian, another Roman law expert, wrote that Cassius says it is permissible to repel force by force, and this right is bestowed by nature. And also Gaius reports that natural reason permits defense of oneself against another against danger, and this is a view also shared by Josephus. The second argument within the just war theory is that biblical arguments, both Old Testament and New Testament, say that war is not incompatible with the law of the gospel. And of course, uh, this is quite important for those who actually have religious sentiments. And in my view, it is very difficult to actually detach these religious sentiments from any discussion in international law. Or at least it is difficult to detach wider philosophical arguments um, which are connected uh, with interventions of uh, humanitarian character in just war generally. The third argument goes that war may be launched as a form of punishment and thereby protect human rights at the same time. The famous father of contemporary international law, Hugo Grotius, who drew very largely on the ideas of Gentili, admitted a right to wage war for the purpose of punishment. Please here note that Alberico Gentili in case you've not heard of him, was a professor, a regis professor of Roman law in the University of Oxford. In the 16th century, he was a member of St. John's College. He produced the famous work, De Jure Belli, which means On the Law of War, on which Hugo Grotius later very much based his own analysis. So Grotius actually put forward a very important moral justification of just war on the basis of Alberico Gentili. And finally, again, uh, the, last, the very last argument is that we have in the just war theory uh, the view that war may be launched in favor of the oppressed. And again, the oppressed here has its own human rights violated. Therefore, intervention in favor of the oppressed is fully justified from international viewpoint. Uh, Grotius, again, has put forward what Lauter Pact stated as the first authoritative statement of humanitarian intervention. And I shall end this lecture by quoting Hugo Grotius in his famous work, De Jure Belliac Pacis, on the law of war and peace. It was obviously produced in Latin, but it's been translated very effectively into English as well. So Grotius says in paragraph eight of book four, if however, the wrong is obvious, in case some bussaries, phalaries, 
or Thracian Diomede should inflict upon his subject such treatment as no one is warranted in inflicting the exercise of the right vested in human society is not precluded. And he goes on, in conformity with this principle, Constantine took up arms against Maxentius and Licinius and other Roman emperors. So following Lauterpact, my proposition in this case is that intervention on humanitarian grounds is not simply legally justified, as I have, I believe, quite effectively analyzed in this lecture, but it is also legally, politically, and morally imperative. Thank you very much. Thank you to you, Yakos, for a fantastic presentation. It Thank really you very much. your expertise on, uh, on, this, on this topic of uh, public international law. Uh, very forceful argument, I'm sure everyone will agree. Um, what was great for us at CCW as well, in the way in which this talk really aligned with our mission, which is putting something in historical context, and you did that by putting uh, unilateral international humanitarian grants in exactly that with your cases from the Peloponnesian War in the 19th century. So thank you. 